Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Block Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us as we tackle another important issue in the world of broadband. We're here to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more and better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. Today, we're going to do something a little different in our in our show format. Uh, so far, most of our broadcasts have been focused on planning and implementing the the network build-out, and we've had just individual guests come on and talk about their projects. Um, But the question comes up, what happens when the technology infrastructure is finished and is built and you switch on the network and and what? I mean, well, magic doesn't just happen. Uh, You have to have applications that draw people to the network, Um, the applications that make them users of the network and believers of the network and evangelists for all of your broadband activities. So today we are going to focus on the applications. What is it that we want these networks to do? Uh, and, and you should consider today Idea Generation Day. You know, there's no idea is a bad idea, though obviously some are more practical than others, but we want you in the audience to be our idea generators. Um, and to help you in that role and to push your creative thinking button, I've brought on uh, a team of folks from Kansas City who are fresh off a major day-long brainstorming session they had there with stakeholders in both Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. And they're going to basically facilitate today's idea generation. Um, we're going to open up the lines in a little bit so that you can actually call in, because we haven't had too many call-ins in our past, but you can call in to 323-679-0845. Or you can come to the chat room and pass on some of your ideas to our facilitators that way. And so far, our chat room is getting pretty full up here, so we are ready to rock and roll. So let's introduce you to our brainstorming facilitators for today. First off is Mike Brown, who is the founder of BrainZooming Group, uh, which and is also editor of a popular blog called BrainZooming. And Mike's business is helping organizations tackle the triple challenge of creativity, innovation, and strategy, which I feel is pretty fitting for this particular show because creativity is what leads to innovation, and you can't implement, implement innovative ideas without good strategy. So consider it the circle of life in this digital age. Um, Mike is standing in for Barb Murphy, who was uh, the key facilitator for the Kansas City brainstorming event, but she's got a bad cold and regrets not being here in person, though I'm sure she's participating online, and she is definitely a font of ideas, and we'll get her on a later show and and bring her on as part of uh, another broadcast on broadband applications. Um, Next up is Tyler Brocknow, who is the co-founder and senior partner for Think Big Partners. Uh, which is in the business of turning entrepreneurs into success stories. They're an early-stage business incubator, a startup accelerator, and network of collaborators who bring together the business resources that entrepreneurs need. Uh, again, Tyler is also a good pick for this session uh, in that he has a legal background and, and experience as an entrepreneur being both the founder and operator of several business ventures. He's worked in politics literally from the State House to the White House, which I thought was pretty impressive. And to top it off, Tyler also knows his way around parts of the sports world, uh, including a stint uh, as founder of a sports representation agency with clients such as Neon Dion Sanders. Whoa. Um, Aaron Deacon, next up, he owns a research insights and strategy company called Curio Lab. And though his company focuses heavily on research, the thing that caught my attention was a sentence on their website that says, we help you ask questions. 
And I've often said that knowing the right questions to ask is often as important or even more so than the answers that you get. Because many times when we see the broadband, you know, occasional broadband projects that are floundering, or you probe into the other projects and find out how they become successful, you find out that those end results are directly due to key questions that stakeholders ask and resolve or ignore only to have them bite them later down the road. So, you know, he is he is the the question guy, and that's a good thing. Uh, he's also on the board of um, uh, Social Media Club of Kansas City, which is an organization deeply involved in advancing the use of social networks and media in various aspects of personal and business life. And then wrapping up our group of um, facilitators for this morning is um, Simon Kuo, who is the co-founder and managing partner of LightThread uh, LLC, which is a business strategy and consulting firm that's worked for uh, Fortune 500 companies as well as local businesses and startups. Uh, Simon also has uh, corporate executive experience with telecom companies, uh, Embark, and Sprint Nextel. So clearly, you know, he has perspectives from all avenues that will be touched by uh, by uh, broadband, and um, and this is going to be very helpful. And also, I understand that that uh, Simon was uh, involved in the Kansas City brainstorming session where he focused on the segment that dealt with broadband apps that are specific to libraries. So I'm pretty much going to just uh, sit back a little bit and just kind of coordinate uh, input and call-ins and whatnot, and I'm going to turn it over to Mike to really get the show on the road. So, Mike, take it away. I appreciate that, Craig. Thank you. But but don't worry, Craig. We'll drag you into this conversation as well. You're not you're not going to get off just purely being online and in the background. So. All right. All right. Work it, guys. Work it. <laughs> okay. Well, as, as Craig mentioned, uh, a couple of weeks ago in Kansas City with Google Fiber coming into town, we had a, a pretty broad, diverse group of nearly 100 people come together to look at various parts of the community and needs, opportunities, and how ultra-high-speed Internet would really be a part of that. So we thought we'd, we'd recreate some of that, build off of some of the ideas today. And again, as, uh, as Craig said, with the panel that we've got, you've got people with various perspectives and participated in that in different ways. So over the course of the hour, we're going to hit four areas, economic development, health care, and, and particularly in terms of people with mobility and, and uh, maybe older people, some of the challenges of getting around and how uh, ultra-high-speed Internet could play into that. Education, and we looked at it in our groups that day from kindergarten all the way through higher education and, and kind of lifelong learners, and then also libraries and how they play maybe a very different and interesting role with broadband of, of being repositories to creators or online repositories of data. So we'll sort of divide out the time, but as Craig said, really encourage people to, you know, either through the chat function, share some ideas, or jump in on the phone line, 323-679-0845, or we've also got a hashtag, GIGNAT, so hashtag G-I-G-N-A-T if you want to hit us up on Twitter. In, in terms of where we thought we'd start is maybe in, with economic development. And we've been processing you know, the thousands of ideas that came in through that day-long session. And one of the things, guys, that came out of that was productivity. And if you're going to have economic development tied into Google Fiber, increased productivity for the businesses that are here and also new businesses coming in is going to be a real central part of it. So. Let's maybe start there and, and talk about what are some thoughts, what are some ideas that you all have been contemplating on how productivity enhancements, cost advantages tied to that, could result from using ultra-high-speed broadband more in a more integrated fashion within businesses and, and within the community. Simon, I'll, I'll maybe get us started if you've got some thoughts. Absolutely. Um, uh, this is Simon Quo. Um, I, I think there are lots of opportunities within the productivity realm, and and certainly thinking through all of the different presentations and ideas having to do with productivity, there were quite a few that had to do with things like distance learning, distance working, um, and, and certainly I think uh, with the advent of gigabit Ethernet availability, you now have the option to, to to not just check your email, but have high-resolution video conferencing, for example, with uh, partners 
in all parts of the country. I mean, we do that to a certain extent already, I think. I think a lot of businesses do these days with things like teleconferencing and, and different applications that allow you to connect like Skype or, or FaceTime, Apple's product. But, um, but I think ultra-high resolution video conferencing kind of takes that to a different level. And, and again, if we get into a, a mode where we can uh, work effectively, collaboratively within groups uh, without having to travel to meetings, um, without having to go to an office, uh, that's certainly a, a huge productivity increase, uh, avoiding the commutes and, and those sorts of things. And, and certainly there were a lot of ideas out there that really tied to sort of the processes of business and, and the interaction, the collaboration. Um, I guess in terms of, of maybe more the production side or, or the, the core things that businesses do, um, Tyler, I know you guys look at a lot of different businesses from the think big side. What, what thoughts, what ideas do you have there about how this capability can start to hit on the productivity side for organizations? Well, and this is Tyler Prognow. I think you hit you know, on one of the big important things that we at Think Big believe in, which is the power of collaboration as a, uh, as a tool for businesses to understand they're not out there by themselves. They are part of an ecosystem, and that ecosystem produces both uh, positive and negative uh, opportunities for you and for your customers and for your clients and the people that you collaborate with on a daily basis. Nobody has a monopoly on great ideas uh, and nobody has a monopoly on mistakes that they've made. So yeah, part of what we do at Think Big is try to bring people together to share their best practices, their biggest challenges. And I think the opportunity that the uh, broadband network provides to allow people, as uh, Simon said, I think, to, uh, to get in there to start to have networks of people, and not just networks of people that meet for a uh, happy hour once a month, but, uh, but to really have productive use of their time because of this high-speed network. And it makes it available to people in multiple destinations, whether it's in their house, whether it's in their business, whether it's uh, you know, at a coffee shop that they may have ducked into for a couple of hours. It gives them the ability to uh, reach out to others in their network or in their similar uh, environment and find the best ways to address not only their own problems, but problems that may relate to their customers or to their, uh, to their clients. It's an interesting yeah. point. Go ahead. Hey, this is Simon again. I want to throw out another crazy idea um, that has to do with productivity, kind of leveraging that, because I think there are second-order benefits to uh, being able to work at a distance. Um, one of the things I, I know I've talked uh, a lot, I talk a lot with freelancers. One of the things that uh, always comes up is the opportunity that freelancers have working in today's economy where uh, you don't have to be, uh, you know, there are ever more freelancers, first of all. You don't have to be tied to an office. And, and why is that important? Well, to, to really kind of kick things out to, to, a, to the next level, when you think about why companies exist, it's always been for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, having legal entities that you can do business with. And secondly, um, so that uh, you can get a bunch of people together to do a bunch of work because in the past, communications were imperfect. And so the only way to get companies, uh, to get people together to effectively work was to locate them all in one place, whether it's, you know, one campus or one building, one location. And again, that was contingent upon communications not being very perfect. Well, when you have widespread availability of something like gigabit broadband, now communications are, are pretty darn good. And at that point, you have to ask really revolutionary questions like, do you really need companies? You know, if, what, if, what if productivity weren't dependent upon these entities called companies and people could get together and work in, uh, whenever they wanted to on any project they wanted to and from any location? Because when we look at the history of innovation and the progress that we've made in society, it's clear that a lot of times that progress depends upon connections being made between people that otherwise wouldn't have existed. So what if we could create products without companies? What if there were online applications that allowed you to create um, that products from ince idea inception to being manufactured, and you didn't have to work for a company to do it, and you could work with anyone you wanted to? So I just want to throw that out. It's kind of a radical idea and a radical use of gigabit broadband. And, and this, is, this is Tyler again. I think that brings up a great point, which is not only do we, you know, question whether there's a need for companies, but even if you put it in the same corporate or uh, entity legal structure that, uh, that you have, there's the opportunity now. Technology is moving so fast. Companies are able to start up 
for significantly smaller dollar amounts than uh, than what it used to be involved for a software uh, component or whatever else that you're dealing with in a technological world. So these companies can get off the ground for relatively small capital investments, but those small capital investments also give them some challenges because they don't have a huge pool of money to be able to go out and hire people. So that they're looking at people that I may need a high-level programmer, a high-level coder, but I only may need them for 6, 10, 20 hours a month. I don't need a full-time person. This uh, gigabit infrastructure allows you to hire those people, have them be productive on a project basis as opposed to an employee basis. And again, you know, maybe you take away the whole need for a corporate structure because you're talking about projects again and not companies. And, 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 you know, I, I think I want to is... jump in for a quick second and just to put this into a real context because both Simon and Tyler, these ideas aren't as far-fetched as you might think. In Kansas City, they have this um, program called 48-Hour Launch. It's, it's a uh, business incubator there, has this program where every quarter or so, what they do is they bring a couple of hundred people together in one physical space but they are, um, uh, uh, what is it, anywhere from 15 to 20 entrepreneurs, and they each have a business idea. And, um, and they start on Friday night with presenting the idea, and then that audience of people are people like investors, uh, legal folks, developers, web people. I mean, there's a whole range of folks representing the range of resources that you would need to start up an Internet business. And the entrepreneurs make their pitch, and people decide which, which team they want to join. And then as they join the team, they start to, to to develop or refine the entrepreneur's idea. And in addition to the people that are there, there are people coming in via Skype who run 30-minute presentations on you know, how to finance, how to fine-tune a business plan or whatever that everyone can participate in. And then also people can remotely from Boston or wherever uh, follow the different groups and, and, and collaborate from a distance. And mind well, this is all happening in a 48-hour period, and it all culminates with um, the best of, the, of those 20 are still left standing with an idea, the beginnings of a management team, a development team, and so forth. And then they do a final presentation as web uh, cast out where, like, say, nine of the, of the original 20 present their plan and their, 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 like, just developed management team, if you will, and, and move that thing forward. And then in the following weeks, they go out and they pursue uh, investment money. But basically what you're looking at is, one, a rapid acceleration of the development process that happens in real time, condensed time, and the web and, and the gigabit network is bringing all of these facets together in this pressure cooker, and out the back end pops X number of businesses. We, we so, actually hosted one of those startup weekends at Think Big last uh, fall, and the, the, the response and the energy in the room was unbelievable. I mean, it's one of the great experiences that I've ever been through, and uh, I I'm, can't wait to uh, to go to my next one. Okay. Yeah, props to uh, Stephen Chown and Adam Coombs, who are responsible for that in Kansas City. Um, we participated in one a, a couple of years ago. And, you know, if you think about that whole model uh, of Startup Weekend, I mean, that, that's really the entree into something I would probably call open-source companies. You know, where you don't have to have defined sets of people working on, on, on uh, the same projects, you know, the same people working on the same projects. It literally could be anyone, anywhere. And the nice thing about the gigabit access uh, on at least one end is that in order to support that many people working on a variety of projects, you have to have a pretty broad uh, bandwidth uh, connection on at least one of those ends to be able to support that many people working collaboratively on one huge project. Exactly. We probably I mean, move to to our health and mobility section. I want to make sure we give equal time or just time to all the the, the, the four topics we've outlined, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, and and I think one of the 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 group that day spent a lot of time talking about kind of telemedicine, sort of how you monitor people, how how medical records from you know diverse physicians sort of live out there. I want to flip that around a little bit because the the group was also focused on sort of mobility challenge people, maybe who in, in prime of life have trouble getting around or older citizens. How could Google Fiber, how could ultra-high-speed Internet play a role in bringing the outside world to them 
since they may have challenges in going and experiencing the outside world. Aaron, kind of draw you into the mix here. What thoughts do you have about that, of of how you maybe bring parts of, of life that people haven't experienced for a while into their home or into their care facility to, to really, you know, bring them a, a more full perspective on life? Yeah, I think I think that's a, a really interesting question. Um, and a lot of the ideas that have come out have been around, uh, you know, the high-definition video, uh, and, and that's been referenced already here today again, which, you know, I think is certainly exciting and is certainly um, – uh, something that is that is easy to relate to because you know we have some high definition video right now you know certainly uh with a higher speed connection you can you can get better definition you can get the HD 1080 and and you know whatever technology is beyond that uh you can stream um you know, multiple uh video streams within within uh, one household um but you know in terms of really enriching that experience I and mean, I think there's a couple things that are going to happen I mean one you know, you look at, at just how the web experience, um, dealing with, with companies and with media content online uh, has changed over the past 10 years. And, and you know, even from a, a corporate website, uh, the degree to which it's social, the degree to which there's video, um, you know, that's going to become even more of a two-way communication, I think, uh, to, to where people, you know, in the home are going to be able to interact um, in increasingly robust ways. Uh, but I think there's even a, a potential beyond sort of video, which we have, and, uh, you know, you start getting into some of the 3D technologies and uh, holography and things like that, uh, which are much further down the road. I mean, I don't think these are things that are going to happen in the next two or three years, but when, you know, when people start thinking about what kind of files can really be, you know, really necessitate gigabit speed, uh, because because if it's, if it's 100 times more than what we have now, you know, you could do 10 videos at once and maybe you're at 100 megs, uh, which is, um, you know, the speed that is, is being implemented in a lot of communities around the world. Uh, but when you start taking it sort of two orders of magnitude beyond where we are now um, to, to be able to get sort of, you know, 3D projections and, and sort of, you know, sci-fi sounding virtual world stuff, um, you know, I think the potential to to – to change the experience that someone who is homebound perhaps has and be able to interact with the world that way is, is very exciting. Uh, it's interesting. Somebody came up to me. We had a public forum at the end of this day-long session where a lot of the concepts were shared, and someone came up to me and told me about a conference he'd just been at where they had a band with three musicians that were all in different locations and basically brought together live in a 3-D environment and played songs together. So if you think about people who used to love to go see music and can't anymore, you could actually bring the concert right into their home. It's, it's an interesting kind of notion. Um, Simon or Tyler, what, what thoughts do you have in terms of how we might bring the outside world into people who aren't able to experience it fully anymore? Um, Mr. Simon, one thought I had was, you know, um, so, so Google has already said that um, they're going to bring Google Fiber to at least 50,000 and potentially a half a million people. And if you think about uh, half a million people and the number of households that is, that, you know, or, and or businesses, it's probably about 100,000 um, connecting points to that gigabit network. And what if as part of that initiative, we put a Wi-Fi, a, a ultra-high-speed Wi-Fi access point at the end of each one of those connections? We could conceivably make one of the biggest Wi-Fi mesh networks anywhere. And um, not only would you have that high-resolution video available to people who are homebound, but they could access it anywhere with their iPad or any other mobile device without having to worry about things like how to set up a router in their home and whether their signal is lost when they leave or come back. They, they would literally have that anywhere. And on top of that, you could have all sorts of monitoring, which I know is something that, you know, as, as people, um, as populations age and more medical problems occur, people are always concerned about monitoring and whether they can get access to emergency care if they need it. You can have real-time monitoring, real-time access to that care, and also the ability to reach out via those mobile devices on this huge Wi-Fi network. Very interesting. Tyler, what, what are you thinking? Uh, you know, I think probably in, in addition to the things that have already been mentioned, the biggest uh, area that I see for benefit to those types of individuals and consumers is, the, uh, is really the inspiration that this network is going to create. I mean, th there's been hundreds of mentions of the delivery 
of services or products to those uh, maybe homebound consumers, and and whether it's video or anything else, that's great. And we all kind of see those, and we know, and we can see how they may, are made better by this network. But I think the the biggest uh, benefit at this point will be looking those companies that may not be a direct delivery to somebody who's homebound, but because of the gigabit network that's being built, they're forced to think about, all right, what can I do? You know, I've got this great tool that's at my disposal now. I've got something that nobody else has. Let's think of uh, ways that we might be able to enhance this experience for people, whether they're homebound or not, and uh, and figure out the best way that we can you know grow our business or maybe take it even in a different direction. And I think it just forces people to think of something different than what they've uh, you know usually thought of what their normal course of business is. And I think, you know, more so than picking out any one area, I, I think the the imagination of what you'll see uh, come out of uh, people's minds and what the, the services and products that they'll deliver uh, will be the great, great part to watch in this whole process. Well, that's, think, it's a, go ahead, Craig. Okay, I just wanted to say I think um, – you know, if we look at two staples of our like of our thinking in two other areas, one business, one entertainment, I think we will find a, a path to a number of applications. So, if I look at collaboration and take it out of the context of businesses collaborating with each other and put it in the context of older people who may not be mobile for one reason or the other, the ability for older people to communicate with each other without having to go into a an assisted living facility is, to me, huge. Because a lot of people want to maintain their independence, but they can't get out. And but one of the reasons that they end up in a in a facility, one of the reasons is you know is to be with other people, to talk to other people, and 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 to to communicate, you know, just have a life with others. And I think that that the opportunity that the video conferencing and 3D imaging and all of that presents to allow them to do that, either with other older folks or with their kids and grandkids and so forth, I think that's going to be a major. Um, a major path to some applications. The other area is on the entertainment side. You know, the Wii has become very, the Wii as in the device, uh, the entertainment device, has become very popular with seniors because it gets them to move. You know, I mean, people even use it as a physical therapy tool. I mean, they can bowl, they can do tennis, they can do a whole bunch of things uh, actively. And so if you look at the ability to get that, you know, that gaming application through a, a gigabit network so that in addition to the collaboration, you know, seniors can stay at least in some ways active, uh, even physically active around the home. Again, I think that's going to be a path to some applications as well. I think that's a, a really fascinating idea. Um, and this is Aaron. Uh, you, you know, and I saw it early when you started talking, and then you kind of came around back to the gaming. But, you know, you think about the, the World of Warcraft or the Call of Duty sort of worlds where, you, you know, I knew – people in college who would, who would you know, spend seven or eight hours in this virtual community. And, and you think about it with that younger generation and even sort of middle-aged, but I, I don't know if there are, um, and maybe somebody else here does, kind of multi-player uh, online role-playing games specifically designed for uh, the seniors or mo- mobility challenged um, trying to address that issue. Do you guys know if that, if that exists? Uh, there are, this is Simon, there are um, MMORPGs uh, designed for things like the iPad and the iPhone. So, uh, and, and they're pretty, you know, they're pretty compelling, actually. They're not uh, necessarily just for interaction. They are games. But, um, but you know, there are World of Warcraft clones uh, and, and a variety of different types of games like that. But do you know if they're, if they're designed in a way uh, to engage the senior audience? Uh, no, they're not specifically targeted toward, its, toward the senior audience. That could be a whole new market. There you go. Yeah. I mean, one other thing, and in, in, have seen this come through in some of the materials Aaron had forwarded, and I think, Craig, this came out of maybe a visit you'd made to Kansas City and the Kauffman Foundation, the opportunity cross-generationally to use this so that you've got senior people, people with mobility challenges, and being able to connect them with younger people. And an interesting benefit both ways that – the young people have insights and expertise that can be valuable to, to more senior people, but they may have expertise and learnings that maybe help, you know, shortcut some of the life uh, learning curves for young people. Um, 
thoughts, Craig, or others on, on how we can maybe make some of those cross-generational connections with Google Fiber? Well, I think you basically have to give them the vehicle to uh, to where that can happen. You know, like we talked about the um, the, the startup weekend. I mean, the whole idea is that at the back end of those 48 hours, you get uh, some X number of applications or companies or whatever. But what you have done is you brought a bunch of people together and let them percolate ideas, you know, wherever they may be located. And I think you just need to do the same type of thing with this idea of creating applications for Seniors, like like for example, I know people in college are studying. You know, they want to do work with geriatrics, and they're you know, and they're in their twenties, right? So they're clearly part of the, you know, the 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 iPhone, you know, everything digital, Facebook generation, and they have an interest in in older folks. And then you have people who are maybe just retired who want to continue to stay in technology or some aspect of you know, developing solutions or services, and they're closer to the age range. And so what you got to do is, is create the vehicle or, or the platform or, or an event where you bring those kinds of people together and you let them collaborate and, and, and come up with ideas. And then you use, you know, seniors that you, that you know, you know, you could be your own relatives or whomever to test these things out. Because, again, once you have the network in place, you know, you, you spend X number of time collaborating online between, uh, you know, older folks and young people. And then you say, okay, well, let's, let's see what this thing does. Let's see how it works. Let's see how it's received. You know, it's the whole pilot program thing. Once you've got a pilot application, you know, use the same network to give it, get it in front of some older, some seniors and see what right. they think. Right. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the term that comes to mind for me is mentoring. I mean, when you think about the intellectual capital that is resident in, in people who may not be mobile um, but have contributed significantly through their lifetimes, and, and, you know, and if they're not mobile, then it's hard for them to contribute anymore. But if there are uh, opportunities, social networks, as it were, that enable um, people who are older and perhaps less mobile to mentor others, I think that's a huge resource that's been untapped up until now. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. I would definitely agree with that one. And I think there's a, a lot of cool opportunity for more sort of oral history projects, um, you know, connecting, really connecting kids in school, uh, you know, and people encourage you to do these projects with your grandparents all the time where, you know, you go talk to them about when they were a kid and then you write it up. But, you know, there's a whole, a whole broader universe out there besides maybe your immediate family and people who have, you know, who have stories to tell. So um, I think more from a sociological perspective, that could be a really neat project. Right. You do something, go ahead, Craig. You do something like the, uh, you know, like what we're doing here, you know, where you get people together and talk about those stories from yesteryear. Because I mean, here we have, you know, this this internet radio show, and it goes out to a whole range of audience, and anybody can call in. Which is a hint, by the way, if people listening want to want to call in with some ideas. <laughs> but um, but it's it's a vehicle, and I can use the same platform to do. You know, a video. I could do create a video montage, and I can put it online. You know, the the opportunities actually are probably endless of just taking the normal things that we have done for forever. You know, we we get people together, we create a scrapbook. You know, we have the home videos, we have all those things, and just enhance it with the technology, and thus bridge those gaps. You know, create those oral histories. You know, to just do a lot of different things to bring people together and get older folks back involved in things. Well, and to use uh, new technologies and kind of, you know, I mean, various software that you can get through the cloud as it, as it becomes more available. But, I mean, imagine, you know, somebody who had lived in Paris back in the 30s and has all these memories, you know, and then they connect with somebody who, who builds a 3D model of the city, um, you, you know, through... Uh, through available architectural software, and they take you know photos that they find, but but they can kind of really talk through this ex experience and help uh, somebody who had you know an experience sixty or seventy years ago, and really find new ways to recreate that virtually. I, I think that'd be really cool. Mm -hmm. I think that were for me. To go, go ahead. Oh, no, we're sort of getting into the. I uh, brainstorming work that we did. I don't know if you want to get into that, but but there's a lot of uh, I think opportunities with respect to cultural history that that, um, that Google Fiber would enable. Um, do you want to go down that path, or do you want to save that until later? Well, 
It's it's funny, Simon, because I think maybe we're going to the same place. I was going to say one of the ideas that night that just really took my breath away when I heard the group reported out was this idea of a cultural cache that you could record your experience at a a venue or a a monument or some kind of cultural area around Kansas City. And, you know, 50 years from now, 75 years from now, grandchildren could see you in 3D who maybe never even knew you. Um, That, to me, was just really striking. And, And again, Simon, maybe that's where you're going in terms of some of the ideas that were coming out of the session. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we talked about in the library um, brainstorming group was, uh, you know, libraries serve as repositories of knowledge today. Um, they have books, videos, music, what have you. And what if we extended that idea? And and one of the challenges, obviously, in the, all the ideas that we've talked about is how do you fully use that gigabit connection? And so one of the things that we concluded was that there there are um, there are things that use a gigabit today, and those things are called data centers. So what if we extended that model and and made the library a data center? It's already a repository of printed content, but libraries are moving to more electronic content. So what if we took that content and converted it to mostly um, electronic content, and you would have servers in the basement of the library that would hold all this content. You could check out electronic books, maybe on Kindle-type devices if you needed to. And as well, what if you extended that model of the library as a data center and allowed the creation of this cultural and geographic specific content and made it a repository uh, for people anywhere to access. Now you would have servers within the basement of a, of a, of a utility a service like a library. You could have, uh, as people said previously, easy to use applications that would enable people to record content anywhere they were. So in Kansas City, if you went to a jazz concert, you know, if they allowed it, you could record real time that jazz musician playing. And it can go directly uh, through, you know, the Wi-Fi network we talked about earlier into the servers that the library manages. And you would have this cache of, of content that was very specific to the region and would give people a flavor not just of the city, but of the cultural um, attractions of the city, the, you know, the, the things that make it worth living in this city. And it would all be there for anyone to see. And what if every city became a nexus for this kind of cultural content? Um, because it's really easy for us to collect a, a very comprehensive view of the things that go on in the city if we crowdsource this to all the residents. And we should probably talk a little bit more, like to follow this path on the library. I know we're going to talk about libraries last, but let's let's continue to pursue that for a few more minutes here. Yeah, another um, another dimension of the whole library experience, um, uh, the librarians that were in the group talked about librarians as curators of content. And so it's not not just that there are a bunch of books in a library. And, and likewise, when you use search engines like Google, they're great, and they point out good information. But uh, we're almost at a point where there's so much information, so much knowledge, so much cultural content even out there on sites like YouTube that we really need people to curate that content. And libraries already have librarians that curate content to a certain extent, do research for, uh, for patrons who need to find information out, who have access to online databases that the library doesn't necessarily manage. But if you added then these servers the libraries managed, you could have not only the content there, but someone to guide you through the content. And, and we even talked about the library then having more space, because libraries also serve as meeting facilities for people. And if you have uh, less space required to store books because books are electronic, then you can have more space to do uh, to hold things like public meetings. You could even have librarians curate content and write, um, write do write-ups that would inform people when social issues came up, for example, for the vote, like if there's an election coming up. And, and we don't have a good way now. People don't know who candidates are. But what if, what if the library being a repository of all this knowledge and this information being a focal point for things like public meetings also serve the purpose of educating the public on issues that were relevant to municipality. And well, now you've experienced the idea of service. Uh, I just want to interrupt one thing. I got a caller online who's been holding for a second. Uh, hold that thought. Let me run. Don't want to lose this person. Good morning. This is Gigabit Nation. Who do we <laughs> have online here? My, this is actually Mike dialing back in. <laughs> Oh, please. <laughs> hey, Mike. You have a question? <laughs> we, we, don't have, we don't have solid lines yet, so I got dropped off. So I, I'm just, I'll sit back and uh, let you guys keep going. But, uh, Sorry about that. Again. I didn't realize. <laughs> All right, carry on, carry on. Don't mind me. 
Well, I just had one final thought, and that is, you know, then the library becomes this very powerful kind of unifying force within the community, uh, a, a true service organization that, that serves all the citizens within a given city with that ge geographically specific information, with the information people need to make better decisions. And it becomes this virtuous cycle of putting content in, having that content come back out, and using that content to educate all the residents of the given city so that, so that we make better choices um, and, and are better informed citizens. Mm -hmm. How does that tie in with the, uh, what was it, the um, K-20 Librarian Project, which I understand was brought up during the, the session dealing with the Kansas City Schools and the library and the community college and so forth? Um, I, I don't actually recall that conversation to somebody else. I got an, I got an email about that one. I I didn't I, I assume it had been part of the uh your brainstorming session, but it's a project that's going on inside uh, Kansas City. It's the KCK uh K20 librarian project. Yeah, we touched upon it, but I I don't work in the library system, so I I don't have any additional knowledge uh on on how all these things would align. Okay. I'll have to write on that and and kind of bring it back to the audience another way or another day, something like that. Okay. All right. Sorry. All right. Carry on. <laughs> Are we all still here? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think I covered uh, the things we talked about in the library uh, domain. Okay. Uh, one one question I had, Simon, and maybe while I was kind of getting back in, you touched upon this, but one of the things we threw out to the library group, and again, interested in others' perspectives on this as well, is library is almost a broadcast center as, as a content creator as opposed to a repository. Did you all spend some time on that, some of those ideas, or, or how might that play in for libraries in, in a different kind of role? Yeah, let me cover that a little, a little bit more. You know, with that Gigaband network access, um, it, it is it, we would hold a lot of content, but there's no reason why you couldn't use those public meeting rooms as video conferencing broadcast centers. You know, right. broadcasting all sorts of information, whether it's a public meeting uh, that was held, um, in in a library um, auditorium, um, and then and then virtually, then you would enable people uh, to be able to participate in those meetings that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. It was pointed out that in some of these meetings that the city holds, for example, that if you don't have time during the day to go to the city offices and and actually be there, you really can't participate, and that therefore limits the number amount of input that the that we get on on topics that perhaps concern a lot more people within Kansas City. And this would enable people to sit at their desks at work, for example, and still participate in civic processes, which you know we think are is extremely important um, as a contributing member of, uh, of of this city and any other city. Yeah, I think the other thing uh, that that happens is that it's not just about content uh, and curation, but also about applications and tools. Uh, and and the education component of that. So you know, even now there are so many applications out there and tools that you can get for free or for cheap, and they're you know maybe cloud-based, and you can have access to them. But but a lot of people in the community don't don't know how to use them. Um, and right. the library has always had sort of this educational function to some degree, and and even you know social media club in Kansas City. Um, does some sort of social media workshops. Uh, and Jason Harper down at the library does, um, you know, how to use Twitter and, and you know Facebook and things like that. And we do that through some other channels as well. But but you know as those become more advanced, um, the, the library's got a real opportunity to be the resource where people can can learn how to use them and learn how to do 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 cool things to enhance their lives. Yeah, one of the things. I, I, I suppose I should add one other thing we talked about along those lines and, and along the lines of kind of reducing the cost of starting businesses um, was, you know, once you have, if the library is, is a data center, once you have that established, there's no reason why you can't have applications within that data center that enable people to do things like develop technology-based apps that uh, are the underpinnings of a business. And, you know, you're extending the service model again and lowering the cost of entry uh, for people who want to be entrepreneurs in that case. And, and there's no reason why those can't be sandboxes, that uh, there can't be sandboxes that are embedded within those servers, whether it's at the library or your school or anywhere else that has this gigabit access. Great. And let me Great. jump Great. in for a second here, too. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago I had a gentleman on uh, as a guest, Don Means, and Don's involved with a national 
um, libraries projects or libraries and broadband project. And I would encourage all of the listeners to um, to go through my archive. It's pretty much all laid out there. And uh, it's Don Means. And, and like I say, we talked for an hour about specifically about libraries and their role and how you know applications could spring up that facilitate you know how libraries do what libraries traditionally do but also how libraries could become uh pilot project sites for various kinds of applications and not even just software applications but if you want to see how um certain hardware works and how certain hardware works with different applications you know in essence setting up the library as an educational center in the full on meaning of the word, where you get educated about how all these various technologies um, work. And so I think that, uh, you know, again, you know, there's, there's a lot coming, I think, out of that initiative, and it kind of gets to the heart of an issue of, you know, are we undervaluing the role, the changing role of libraries as all of this technology comes out? Because people have the misconception that as, as the Internet becomes more prevalent, people stop going to libraries when indeed the the traffic to libraries is just as high uh now from people who have internet connections as it is among people who do not and if i can do one little housekeeping thing someone had asked a question about um one of the uh, questions in the chat room about the gigabit city conversations happening outside of the normal 9 to 5 hours and i know you guys are directly responsible <laughs> for that but that's a that's a word from the chat room there I, I mean, it's a great idea. <laughs> it's a, good, 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 good suggestions, Sarah. And I know that there are people. Uh, you know, it, it does make it hard. It's interesting, you know, that you have all these, and, and that happens with any kind of new new technologies. You're talking about all these, uh, you know, ways that you can use it, but you're not using them as you talk about it. So, right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we forget that. Okay, well, why am I doing this at this time of day, considering that anybody could come in at any time? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> because libraries have certain hours, but I, it maybe is worth talking about. I mean, as we compile the results, and we're going to be releasing sort of the major component of the results in the next couple of weeks, one part of that is all the ways that people can continue to use and build on and share those ideas. So part of it happens formally, but part of it happens whenever anybody wants to work with those ideas as well. So right. everything that we did that day will be open sourced and be available to anybody in Kansas City or around the globe as well. You know, and in that in that light, the sort of that global consideration, wouldn't it also be possible to have, you know, taking the library concept here and say, what if we could connect libraries in different countries? Because the same way that I might have a project where I'd want to find out about uh, some particular event that happened in uh, Milwaukee in the Prohibition era, um, I could just as easily, contact, if I'm studying German in, in uh, high school or even college, go to a library and connect with a library in Dusseldorf or, or Hamburg and be able to um, carry out projects just the same, you know, but there's a time difference, obviously, but, you know, with archiving and everything else, you don't have to necessarily be constrained by the time difference, but you will just open up literally the world via, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the library. I, th I think that was sort of a central theme we saw coming out of not only the library, but the educational groups as well. The whole idea that learning resources, you know, until very recently have tended to be very geographically constrained. There's a teacher at a certain university. There are books in a certain library that this now allows you to basically free those constraints. So if you've got in, in, in Kansas City where you've got two states, uh, seven counties, a variety of school districts, the idea in the education side, maybe we'll turn there for the last few minutes, was if you've got a great teacher who's in Kansas City, Missouri, why not make them broadly available to everybody across the metro area, at least within the scope of what we were talking about, to, to beef up and strengthen the educational opportunities for kids all over? And I thought that was an interesting take on things. So let's let's move in, in the last ten minutes that we have. Let's move to a discussion uh, talking about education. And by the way, I got I'm uh, flipping all over the place here. We've got uh, so I got a comment coming in via Twitter. Um, you know, 
as we talk about education, does education become a good reason to use more cloud services? Because I think the, the, the question that's coming in is along the lines of, you know, if people are slow adopting the, the cloud technology, the cloud concept, are these applications ones potentially that could drive uh, a greater adoption of cloud computing? This is Mike. Tyler. I don't think. Yeah, I think the the primary benefit that you see, you know, from the from the broadband networks uh, are are twofold. Obviously, we touched on it real quickly there. The access for students, the access to a particular teacher who may be a uh, an expert in a particular area who's not constrained by geography. So you obviously have the access allows those students to get the best uh, information, the best teaching and uh, the best classroom experience that they possibly can without uh, having to get in a car, go to a different school, a different facility, a different building, or a different state. The other uh, big component, uh, obviously, for education is infrastructure. And I, I think we had uh, one of the things on the uh, agenda today was about uh, you know, getting Kansas City, Missouri's accreditation back in uh, place. I don't know that uh, you know, the problem with, uh, with getting that back is necessarily – all financial, but certainly in this era of uh, difficult economy and tight state and city budgets, the, uh, the being able to do more with less dollars is the goal of every type of organization. And the infrastructure uh, abilities for students to to have more access, you don't need quite what well, we talked about the size of libraries in a building, so you might be able to find more classrooms to have smaller class sizes. You may be able to uh, you know combine certain programs, certain schools, or other things to allow those students to make more efficient use of the resources available to the school districts and, uh, and have them uh, you know, provide a better learning experience for all students, uh, regardless of where they're located. And so I, you know, I don't know whether it necessarily produces or encourages people to adopt a cloud-based method, but it's certainly a, you know, one of the byproducts, I think. I, I think it's what comes out of it, not necessarily a... Uh, uh, but for uh, relationship. Right. And I got a comment in the chat room saying that, you know, if we store data on a local cloud, it translates into lower transit charger, charges uh, for the rural areas. So maybe that, you know, again, another element to add into the mix that, might again, might drive the, the, the use of cloud and, and, and also expanding the, the, the application. Right. Yeah, this is something. I, mean, I, I kind of wonder if there is the opportunity also to uh, you know, improve the whole learning experience. I, I mean, you can obviously think of ways that um, it improves how schools are run immediately. For example, maybe kids don't have to miss school if they're sick. They can just view, view the class from home. Um, is, is there opportunities for more self-paced learning? What if you had repositories and uh, collections of every class that was ever taught within a school by a given teacher? You know, you're no longer dependent upon, again, geography or time or anything else. How, can then you, how could you then extend the learning model? Maybe it becomes more like, um, like homeschooling with the opportunity for students to get together, um, you know, to, to get the socialization aspect in as well. But maybe you kind of change the whole model of how schools are run at, while reducing the cost at the same time. Yeah, I and, think, and I don't want to lose track of the international aspect in this. I mean, I, I think that's one of the dings we have against, uh, uh, you know, the learning process is that people don't explore enough outside of their own culture or outside of the U.S. culture. And if you can set up, um, you know, even if it's Skype, it doesn't necessarily have to be a cloud computer, but if you can use Skype to create these, uh, exchange programs that are in real time and they're dynamic. You know, one month it can be Japan, and next month it can be, uh, uh, you know, Germany or France. You know, it's like the whole, you know, once you start pushing, I think, in terms of looking at changing the experience, just getting away from all of the traditional confines, whether it's geography, time, or, you know, textbook process we seem to have be, become wedded to, then, again, you, you create the path for a whole range of applications really to come out of that. Yeah, I think, the, I think the, the international piece is huge. and it's you know There's a lot of conversation in Kansas City about, oh, we're going to be the first, we're going to be the first. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the first large U.S. city. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure uh, how many people realize what's being done in other countries, um, uh, you know, in Korea, South Korea, and Japan, and Singapore. 
um, you know, even in, in the UK and European countries. So there's, you know, I mean, having, uh, starting to understand ourselves in a global marketplace, uh, you know, for our city, I think is critical, and also for kids in the educational system today and understanding that they're going to be competing not with, you know, necessarily just the kid across the hall or the kid in Chicago or in Boston, but, um, you know, kid, kids across the world. Um, the other thing that I think is is of huge import in, in terms of education, you know, a lot of the ideas that come out are about content, and, and this is similar to what we were talking about with libraries, you know, just uh, how much more content there is, uh, you know, how to make it easily accessible, how to deliver content, but there's, there's possibly a, a big curricular shift um, coming, too, because data is – uh, so accessible and is becoming increasingly accessible and, and is becoming so vast that, that you can't necessarily master it. So whereas the educational model used to be about delivering content and when you master content, then you're educated, um, the, w what you learn in school um, is going to have to include more about the tools to access content, uh, the tools for collaboration, uh, and the ways, the ways to then use that and turn it into something to something useful, um, you, you know, it gets a little bit scary <laughs> when you think about how much of the learning content you want to uh, you want to get rid of to do that. But I, but it's a real conversation uh, that I think is going to be pretty critical as we mm -hmm. look toward the future of our educational system. The chat room here has gone has gone crazy with a whole lot of different thoughts and ideas. One of the things, a uh, question that came out is, you know, as a result of the brainstorming session in Kansas City, um, are there plans for creating like maybe many pilot projects that say for example in in the education space so maybe taking or 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 finding a way to extend maybe via wireless the power of the gigabit network out to one of the smaller areas surrounding Kansas City and try out some of these uh uh you know extended or expanded learning uh ideas it's an interesting question uh and and Google uh, from their perspective, you know, is not particular. I mean, there, there's this whole issue of connecting rural America, and mm -hmm. you know, you can provide you know uh, healthcare access to people out in the boonies, uh, and that's that's not really their their play, at least as far mm -hmm. as they've expressed it to us. Uh, there are some people I know. There's a, a broadband project in the UK um, that BT is really uh, invested in in pursuing that, um, and and I think it's. Obviously, a, a pretty compelling idea, but I'm not sure if if anyone's exploring that at this point. I don't think Google is. Now, do you guys? I may as well ask this question too while we're talking about applications. So, in the course of all of these ideas that are that are percolating up, um, is there an option? Do you know for the city to be able to expand? On what it is that Google does. In other words, they're 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 clearly building a network with a very specific purpose in their mind and a very specific geography in their mind. But you know, can you extend that power once you've got the core? You know, once they've got their vision done, can you guys build on that? I guess is the question. And you guys may not be the right people to ask, but I just ask Craig may be the right person to ask. You've got well, the uh, the sort of public-private partnership. <laughs> <laughs> So this is Tyler. I, there absolutely is that. Not not only is there an opportunity, but the the cities are thinking about it. The, you know, the mayors on both sides have uh, appointed a task force. That obviously their first and foremost goal is to provide the infrastructure and and the opportunities for the uh, the citizens and the businesses inside their geographical coverage area. But uh, they are also meeting with. Uh, people in other state stakeholders from uh, other areas to try and decide, all right, are there ways that this, you know, even if you don't have this network today, odds are it's coming somewhere down the road, not in the too distant future, and how do we prepare to make sure that we take advantage of all of the link opportunities and all of the sharing opportunities and, uh, you know, you don't end up with cities basically building walls around their networks uh, which is the, you know, the exact opposite goal of creating these networks in the first place. Mm -hmm. So th those conversations are ongoing. They're, they're obviously limited a little bit by the, uh, you know, by the lack of network in other cities, but I, but I think you'll see early adoption and uh, lots of uh, collaboration as soon as they start expanding outside of uh, the Kansas City uh, area. Yeah, this is Simon. I, I think one of the biggest challenges for us in Kansas City is, is literally to take this network and then actually do something with it. 
So you know, we have a lot of ideas. It's clear from the network deployments in other parts of the U.S. and other countries that just deploying the network alone and charging people money causes you to be in a situation where it's not necessarily sustainable. I mean, you look at places like um, uh, like Hong Kong where they're offering gigabit service for, I think, $26 a month. I think the Hong Kong broadband network company that's doing that expects to lose money for seven years before they recoup the cost of that network based upon charging somebody a $26 monthly recurring charge. Well, that's a model that's just not going to work. So uh, Google's doing us a favor by coming to Kansas City and deploying this network. But I see our challenge as, as developing applications that actually will generate money that will pay for the network ultimately. Because that's got to be the ultimate goal behind a project like this. It's like open sourcing a software um, application uh, challenge. You know, throw out the tools to Hold communicate. On second, gentlemen, gentlemen, I know we're, we're at like uh, 10 seconds left. I have to thank okay. everybody quickly, but check into my blog, Fighting the Next Good Fight, because there are comments that people have made that I'm going to put online. Great. Craig, thank you very much. Awesome. Great to Great. participate. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.